You're listening to The Currency Welcome. Hey, I'm Mike Gaston. I'm your host. Glad to have you guys along. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 139 of the podcast. Hope you guys are doing great. How were your holidays? We had a great Thanksgiving, a great Christmas, and I wish everyone a happy new year. Hope you all have a prosperous, healthy, uh, happy, safe, secure, and joyous new year. Uh, I, I've stopped actually getting super stoked about the new year. I usually go into the new year like, oh, this is going to be my year. It's kind of become a meme with everybody because we've always thought this is going to be my year. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to read lots of books. I'm going to make all this money and take vacations. Like we have all these plans. And the last handful of years, <laughs> the year's like, yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> you're going to be quarantined. You're going to lose your job. You're going to become a heavy drinker, you know, fill in all the blanks. So I've, I've taken to like, okay, I'm not going to get too stoked. That that was going into the new year. I have to be honest, now that we're in it, I'm kind of excited. I'm excited for a new year. It's just, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's just another day on the calendar, but for some reason, this idea of resets, new starts, fresh beginnings, all that jazz, it's nice. It's nice. So I hope the best for you. I'm excited about what is ahead. I have some great things planned, some looking forward to getting into certain types of projects and so on. Well, let's get into today's content. I want to talk a little bit about a smoking gun. Now, last episode, we were talking about Eric Vogelin and his new science of politics. We're going to put that on pause. I've got one more episode on that uh, to close out that series, that that award-winning, ground-shaking, earth-shattering series. We've got to put it on hold. I know I, it's breaking your hearts. I can hear the groans right now as I speak. But here's the thing. We're going to talk about a little something different today. I found a smoking gun. I want to share it with you. I will return to Eric Vogelin next week. We're going to get him wrapped up. I wanted to give that a little bit more attention. Uh, today, though, I want to talk about a smoking gun. You know, I don't know if, like me, uh, you have been wondering for years now, what is going on with the media? And even to say that is like so... It's so silly because it's like the media is so bad and we all know it. Like, why even bring it up? You know, it's it's like, uh, why even ask that question? Because quite frankly, we we all are just, it's just like in agreement, like, yeah, this is pretty bad. You know, something will happen. Maybe there's a crime. Uh, the media will go out of its way to not uh, publish anything about the perpetrator if the perpetrator fits certain criteria. So like, you know, and I'm just going to put it on the table. Like, let's say, for instance... Uh, uh, an immigrant from the Middle East with a very um, ethnic name, a very Muslim name, commits some type of crime in the street, you know, uh, maybe there's a stabbing or something, or they drive a car through a bunch of people at a, at a parade, a Christmas parade. The media will go out of its way to not identify those types of characteristics about the individual. They hide it. And people get outraged about this. And there's outrage on both sides. It's like the fact that people want to know, well, you know, did the guy have Muhammad in his name? You know, they, uh, they want to know this. And then so you're, that makes you a racist. That's outrageous. Or the fact that the media hides it. And it's like, yeah, there was this random crime. We really don't know, you know, what there was no motive, um, not a hate crime. We don't know what's going on here. And so there is this sense of cynicism because the, the media really does not report facts and they, they don't. They don't provide a clear picture. And and I'm not this this episode is not me prosecuting that case. I'm not trying to make the argument. I think it's pretty well known. I think that you have to be either really low IQ or really delusional to believe that the, that our general mass media, news media, et cetera, do a pretty fair and even job. And all of us, and we've all become so partisan, and we just expect that the media is partisan also. Now, granted, there are some journalists out there trying to, to just present good information to to get you know get a good scoop on something uh, to uncover corruption and so on. But the days where we think that the media is objective, you know, those days are long gone. We don't. I don't think any of us presume that. And even the way that you and I choose our media sources kind of belie this fact. I mean, if you look at your own personal choice, like where do you like to get your news? kind of tells you about where you're at on the political and partisan divide. You know, if you love Fox News, well, that probably tells you you're conservative and you're not listening 
and watching Fox News because you think they give you the most kind of politically um, politics-free news. You know that their politics and their information is very conservative. Now, I would argue often it's not conservative. Uh, I would think in, in a lot of instances they kind of go the corporate uh, route. They go the, the liberal route in some instances. But but the fact being, like, if you if you identify as a right-wing kind of conservative, Republican, whatever guy or gal, you're probably listening and watching Fox News, and you're watching them because you know they're on your team. You're not watching them because you think that they're the most um, neutral. You're not looking for a neutral player. You're looking for someone that's on your team that's going to tell you what you think the truth is. And the same goes for those folks, you know, watching, listening, reading CNN and MSNBC. You're trying to find a news source that that is closely aligned with who you are as opposed to one that is neutral. And I think that right there should tell us the state of the media, that neutrality is a joke. We're in this kind of postmodern, cynical world. Uh, we don't know what's true anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And so we just kind of roll our eyes and go, that's so, that's so naive to think that the news is neutral. We all know it's not. We know our government isn't neutral. We know the science isn't neutral. We know our institutions are not neutral. We know that the press is not neutral. And so I think I've found the smoking gun because something did happen in our society. There was something that happened that changed the nature of the news. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you if you remember your civics and history classes as kids, those of us that are Gen Xers or older, you will remember that we were taught that the press, a free press, was was critical to the success of our democracy and really any democracy. And the reason that is, is because when you have a population choosing their leadership, when you have a population that votes, they have to be educated. They have to be well-informed. And so it's not just a matter of that they have to go to school and get educated on history and civics and science and, and uh, mathematics and you know, literature, et cetera. They have to be informed in the moment about what's going on so that they can make good choices at the ballot box. Otherwise, you have a population that's easily manipulated. Any kind of demagogue can come along and capture the society. And, and you have to have the press that is free. It can hold power slash government, corporations, wealth, money, people. It can hold them accountable by reporting on corruption and exposing scandals and, and illicit behaviors. It can give the population updates on things like legislation that's happening and the impact of that legislation and who's behind it and where's the money coming from, what would be the impacts of that legislation. People need to be able to know the economic circumstances of their communities, and this is where journalism again comes in. So, so the media plays a very critical role in a democracy because those, uh, the constituents, the voters, have to be well-informed, not just educated in school, but well-informed so that they can make the right choice, the best choice, the, the, the choice that makes the most sense for them. You can't have that without a free press. Now, growing up, I always had this idea of a free press. Well, if the press isn't free, it means the government's controlling it. You know, you look at these other countries, the Soviet Union, China, uh, some of these other uh, regimes when I was younger, and you thought, well, that's, there are countries where the, the government controls the press. The only news that's allowed is the news that the that the state allow, that the state approves, and um, that's what people hear, and so they hear the party line. So, in my mind, a, 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 an unfree a, an unfree press uh, would be a press that's controlled by the government. And so you think, okay, we need to make sure that the government can't interfere, that the press can be free, and so on. But even with the government not interfering, and, and we, you could say today the government has been interfering. If you include Twitter, you know, when obviously when Elon Musk bought Twitter, um, it was confirmed. I mean, a lot of people suspect it, but it was confirmed like the government was in deep, in deep. I mean, they had, was it the FBI or the CIA? By the way, I'm recording this. It's like 830 at night. I'm exhausted. I've had a wicked headache all day. I've had a few hours sleep. I recorded this episode a couple days ago, and I just have not been happy with it. And, it. and it's like, I'll be darned, I'm getting this episode out this week. I want to get one episode out a week. 
And I thought, I'm just going to re-record. So if I sound exhausted and I'm a little bit like, I can't remember FBI or CIA, I apologize. I'm happy. I'm glad to be behind the microphone and, um, and I have a smile on my face, but the old, the old brain box isn't, isn't, uh, isn't firing on all cylinders sometimes. So I don't remember if it was the CIA or the FBI, uh, forgive me for that, but they had like lots of staff on site at Twitter working full time behind the scenes, controlling, suppressing, tracking accounts, et cetera, so that they could that they could not just keep a finger on the pulse of the conversation, but that they could control it. I mean, that's just like a big no-no. So, you, so it's funny. You read... Uh, a novel, you watch a movie, you know, you, you hear these stories about governments controlling things, you know, this government controlled the press and, you, and, and it's always cartoonish. It's always some, you know, goose stepping, you know, Nazi-esque, you know, dictator and the shock troops marching around. And, and I guess that stuff happens. But like not all dictatorships, not all totalitarian governments, not all, you know, not all these kind of like overreaching, overbearing uh, immoral, illicit behavior from government. It's not always cartoonish. And that's the problem. You know, everybody's like, you're a Nazi. It's, it's like they go to the most cartoonish, buffoonish, silliest, extreme example. And meanwhile, it's happening like right in front of you. When your government has hundreds of staff members, I don't know the number, from one of your alphabet agencies on staff at Twitter controlling things behind a curtain that nobody knows about except for the Twitter employees, I guess. My friends, your government is controlling the media. It's just plain and simple. They don't need to be goose-stepping Nazis that storm through the front door and round up all the Juden. Get a clue. You know, this is the, I mean, you know, our media is great, entertainment's great, all that kind of stuff. Although I'm not happy with Amazon knocking a $2.99 fee onto Prime per month if you want to avoid having now commercial ads in the midst of your streaming with them. Come on, Prime. You guys are already stepping on my neck. <laughs> they could have milked me for another $2.99. But our media is great. But the problem is it, it creates sometimes these cartoonish ideas like, you know, oh, I'm totally going to be part of the resistance, you know, if the government ever fill in the blank. And meanwhile, it's already been ha it's already been happening for a decade, and people are going, well, you know, it's it's like they just can't seem to see what's right in front of them. And I guess this ties into the smoking gun. You know, I'm, I'm riffing a little bit here, but this is all tied together. So, I found the smoking gun. I found what happened and when. That, that changed the media from being a hyper object. A hyper object, I, I've heard of this hyper object from Paul Vanderclay. If you're, if you're into theology and social commentary, et cetera, you might want to give him a look. He's got a fascinating uh, podcast slash YouTube channel. But he talks about a hyper object. I don't know if it was his concept or someone else's, but you have these, like the press. The press is a hyper object in that... We think of it as an entity. There's this thing, the press. But really, there is no the thing, the press. But there is. Really, the press is a collection of entities, organizations, individuals, you know, thousands and thousands of them across our country and across the globe, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a million people involved in the media. I mean, there's tons of people, and there, and there are many different roles. There are advertising agencies. There's content creators and writers and videographers and news networks and journalists. I mean, all these individuals and entities and organizations. But you bring those all together, and it creates this thing called a hyper object. It's this thing that you and I think about as a, as a cohesive thing. It's, this, it's like, hey, there's my friend Bob. Well, hey, there's the press. Well, you can't see the press walking down the road, but it clearly is a thing. This isn't just uh, something that, that the human mind is putting on a disorganized, chaotic, random set of things, and we're creating order, so it's like oh, it's all subjective. There's, there is a thing, the press. Uh, so we're talking about this, the press, and, and, and something changed where it went from an entity— a group of people, et cetera, that reported the events of the day. I've talked about this in, in podcast episodes quite a while back uh, when we got into things like pseudo-events. 
in the book, The Image. And um, you, there was a time in, in our history, both in America and across the West, where the press just saw their job to report events as they happened. There was a flood. There's a, there's a, there was a famine. Uh, a war broke out. Uh, the stock market, you know, went down so many points, and uh, a new bank was opened, you know, on Fifth Street. And so, so you're getting information. You're getting events as they happen presented to you factually. That was the job of the press, and it was intelligence. You were getting intelligence about the world around you, whether it was the the, the very local, immediate world, or the or the world farther off. And for those that were illiterate at the time, they had access to a perspective on the world that others did not. And that benefited them because people were still doing investments and and mercantile activities and prosecuting wars and political campaigns and so on. But something changed. All right. Let's shift gears for a second. Back around the time of the economic crash, 2008-2009, I was kind of, and I've been on this journey for a lot of my adult life, but working on trying to become a better writer. I don't remember exactly the year. Let's call it 2009. Maybe it was 2011. I don't remember. Uh, And there was a number of books recommended. I was probably reading a website or something, and there was kind of a list of books. And I had already had some of these books and maybe have read them once or twice before. But there's this list of books of like, hey, you ought to read this. If you want to get better at writing, you ought to read that. So for instance, a few of these books, one was um, uh, Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing, which is kind of a riff on the title of uh, uh, Zinzer's book, On Writing Well. And I have both those books. And in fact, both those books were on the list. So, you know, Stephen King kind of shares on writing his experience of writing novels and how he writes. And he doesn't get into minutiae. It's more about him as a writer, how he approaches his writing and what he strives for and shares some anecdotes and stories and so on. It's, it's really good. I mean, I'm not a – I used to read Stephen King stuff when I was younger. I'm not a, I'm not a big horror fan. But, you know, King is a, is, a, is a well-known, respected, successful author. And I remember reading some of his stuff. I mean, I remember reading The Strand. It just was amazing. Pet Cemetery also amazing. But I'm not a big fan of Stephen King, but it, it was great. It was just a great – you don't have to be into horror. It was just a great insight into how a very successful writer did and does his thing. You learn from it. Uh, Zinzer. What's Zinzer's first name? I'm going blank on his name. I know his first name. Uh, anyway, uh, Zinzer's on writing well. He's famous, and uh, that that book's a classic. And I read that book over and over. Uh, not every day, but like that's a book I return to every year, two, three years. I'll read it through. Lots of great advice, um, and just in simple stuff, but like always relevant, and I always get something out of it. Well, one of these books being recommended, I'd never read it before, was called A Writer's Coach by Jack Hart. And Jack Hart, journalist, uh, I think by training, worked in the newspaper trade. He had kind of gotten himself into this position where he would train journalists. So a newspaper might bring him on as a writing coach. He wasn't helping them, you know, here's how you go and collect facts and all that. His focus was how to help journalists become great writers. You know, you can be really good at digging into a story, trying to uncover the truth, doing research, finding sources, and so on. But at some point, you've got to bring all that together into a piece that people can read. And so Jack Hart was this writer's coach. He actually was working somewhere on the West Coast. I want to say Oregon. I could be wrong, maybe Portland. But he was working with a newspaper there, uh, and he helped get that newspaper to like high recognition, like award-winning journalism. So they went kind of, you know, it's almost like one of these baseball stories, uh, you know, this down and out team and the coach comes in and and now they're, you know, kind of plucky and they're winning World Series. So he's a writer's coach, did some really great work. And he didn't kind of tout his bona fides in the book, I just happen to know this about him. I think he mentions it. Maybe it's in his, maybe it's in the forward or about the author. But long and short of it, the book is really good. It's his advice to journalists, but it's really advice for writers. I mean, you, you read this and you don't have to be a journalist because like I said, he doesn't get into, you know, how do you get the scoop and, you know, how do you interview people? It's assuming that you've got something to say. And so let me help you as a coach say it and say it effectively, say it compellingly and say it well. 
And it's, it's fantastic. This is one of these books like, ah, oh, it's just like, it's just so fulfilling to read. And this is another book that I do return to from time to time. I've probably read it through three times. I think it was published in 2007, if memory serves right. And anyway, one day I was reading through the book and, you know, even though it's a journalist, like, you know, Jack's working for with journalists and newspapers, and even though his background is the news world, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't betray any political leanings in the book. The book is not in any way partisan. It's not politicized at all. I mean, if anything, he kind of exemplifies the way he communicates, at least, what you want in a journalist. Like, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. Just tell me the truth. Like, stop being so partisan. Like, like be fair. If you find corruption in the Republican Party, okay, fine. But darn it all, if you also find it in the Democrat Party and you're a Democrat, you damn well should report it. Don't bury it. And don't look for a way to spin it to somehow pin it to somebody else. Like, it would just be great to have an objective press. Like we were taught, I think I, I probably got sidetracked earlier, but we were talk, taught earlier, not only was it a free press, but the press was objective. Like, journalism had to be objective. You know, it was all... It, it, you know, and we believed it. I remember as a kid, like a uh, you know junior high or grade school kid, like, oh yeah, they're objective. They they don't let their feelings or their thoughts get in there. They tell the truth as it is. But what a sweet what a sweet boy I was. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, and it, well, there's a lot of people running around still saying like the same thing. Oh, scientists, you know, it's the science. You know, scientists would never like lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, warp the facts. And their subconscious wouldn't get in the way in any way. No, they're scientists. They're like robots. They're not even really people. They're just machines that spit out truths. Fauci, King Fauci, you know, my, my favorite punching boy. I, I can't stand that guy. I don't, I don't know if you know that about me, but I feel, I feel good getting that off my chest. So Hart doesn't betray any kind of political leanings, and all the advice he gives is like right down the middle, just great stuff. And it's one of these books you can read over and over again because uh, it's information. It's like, you know, how to and try to avoid this and, you know, make sure to like do that. It's just good stuff. Okay. Well, there was this curious footnote that I came across while reading the book. It was, it was, it was different. Like a lot of the footnotes were just referenced back to some other source on some advice he was giving, or maybe he was citing an example, like, hey, here's a paragraph of really great writing, and let me tell you why, and you read the, the excerpt and the footnote, it's like, hey, you know, uh, the Beaverton Falls, you know, bugle, <laughs> 1972, whatever. So this was a very curious footnote. I don't have the footnote in front of me, but in essence, it, it referred to this to this Hutchins Commission, and it made reference to how the Hutchins Commission from 1947 changed the way that journalism happened. It, it kind of made this, and I and I wish I could, and I, you know, I've got the book. I, you know, I could pause the podcast to grab the book. You don't need to hear the footnote, but long and short of it, it, it referred to this Hutchins Commission from 1947 and said, hey, ever since the Hutchins Commission, essentially journalism's changed. The way that the journalism is, is approached um, was changed ever since that Hutchins Commission, the findings, the report that came out. And I was like, what's that all about? And uh, in essence, he was saying that, you know, it was no longer just enough to report just the facts that the Hutchins Commission advised the media, the press, that it needed to help the population make sense of the facts. And that caught my eye. Because as soon as you start helping me make sense of things, I'm, I'm paying attention. Like, something's going on here. And what's curious about, like, it wasn't that the footnote didn't belong. I mean, Hart included it. But it was curious to me because it was almost like it was almost like I got to see his cards, like we're at the table playing cards, and somehow he just kind of flashed his hand, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And that's what I couldn't figure out. Like, did he want me to see that? Is that like a like what was that? So I was like, okay. Now I didn't pick up on it in my first reading, uh, but I did pick up on it, say like 2020, I want to say, when I was reading through the book again. And it, it stood out to me. And I was like, huh. And I did some quick online research and 
tried to find this Hutchins commission. I, I found a couple references to it, but it was, it was, it was, there wasn't a lot there. I was like, there's, you know, it's the internet. There's gotta be all kinds of information on this thing, especially if this changed the way that journalism was done. But I, I couldn't find it. I mean, I was looking everywhere. And I couldn't find much. I mean, I saw a reference to it. I, I was hoping to find the report. It, I couldn't, I was like, eh, I, I thought maybe I'd find a PDF of some like, you know, scanned old document. If this commission put out some type of report, maybe there was like a 50-page, you know, document or a 500-page, whatever it was, I was just like, it'd be great to find it, um, but I, I didn't see it. Life continued to happen. I probably got distracted in the middle of that search, filed it in my mind, actually even made a note about it for my Zettelkasten. I don't know if you guys know what a Zettelkasten is, but I'm going to talk about that some other time, but it's essentially a system for note-taking. So when I'm reading books, I'm capturing information and note-taking. Often something remarkable or noteworthy, no, <laughs> no pun intended, will go in my note box, and that's a Zettelkasten. Uh, you can look that up if you're interested. I'd be happy to talk more if you want to get in touch. Okay, uh, so filed away. Well, this year I pull out Jack Hart. I'm going through Jack Hart again, and I'm like, golly, there's that reference again. I got I to gotta look that up. Oh, by the way, it's William Zinzer. Just came to me. William Zinzer on writing well. Thank you. Uh, so I'm I'm reading it. I see that footnote again, and I'm like, shoot. So again, I and I I open up my Zettelkasten. I kind of dig through. I look for some of my notes around this thing. Yep. Okay. I don't have a lot there. I've got to look this up. I've got to find this commission. So, and at this point, I'm like, I kind of want to do maybe a video on this because you know I've I've learned some more about this, but not enough. I think I'd like to put a video together, but I need this report. I want to dig into it because I think I think there's some gold in there. Right? It's got to be, and can't find it. Eventually, I realize uh, that the Hutchin Commission, Hutchins, Hutchinson, friends, the Hutchins Commission, Hutchinson Commission. Its real name is actually the Commission on Freedom of the Press, and the reason it's called the Hutchin Commission, it was informally referred to as that because uh, the guy that kind of headed it up was Robert Hutchins. So apparently some of the big hitters in the media, like, uh, is it Henry Luce, L-U-C-E? I can't remember if it's Henry, but I know the last name is Luce. Luce was the founder-publisher of, of Time Magazine and, and Time Publishers. And, and, and he, they, I mean, Time was massive, massive. Luce was a hitter. The guy was super wealthy. He was super influential. He had Time Magazine, Life Magazine. They had all these spinoff publications over, over time, no, no pun intended, again. And Time was big. Uh, this, this is back in the 40s. And Luce went, got Hutchins and said, hey, there's some concerns around the press's ability to stay free, to be responsible. Uh, so let's put together a commission to dig in and to see if we can understand what the real challenges of the modern press are, uh, the needs of our society, and recommendations on how to keep the press free and responsible, free and fair. And so he went to Hutchins. Hutchins pulled together really a star-studded cast. A lot of these names you may or may not know. I don't know all of them. But for instance, some of the folks on this commission, you got Zachariah Chafee Jr. He was a hitter. Um, let me see here. There's a couple that you're going to know. So for instance, Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was big. I don't know if you if you know that name, if it rings a bell, but in public theology, he was a theologian, but he was kind of one of America's theologians back in the day. Very big public theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. He was on this. Uh, George Schuster, another big one. Arthur Schlesinger, another big one. So there was a bunch of names. And some of these names like William Hawking and, and Harold Laswell, like you and I might not know who those folks, but they were all hitters. These were all captains of industry, theologians, philosophers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, interestingly, supposedly, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, um, but I think the majority of the commission were not people of the press, which is a little surprising, is it not? Um, but yeah. So let's uh, keep moving here. So what's interesting about this is once I realized, well, this isn't interesting. I'm the, what's interesting? Well, Mike, this isn't interesting. Long and short of it, when I realized it was the Commission on Freedom of the Press, I started searching on that level. I was able to find a book. The, the, they have their report that was published in 1947. It was republished in 1974. 
and I was able to get the paperback reprint. Uh, so it's, the book is brand new. I mean, it's it's, but the, it's from the reprint 1974, and it's edited by Robert Lee. Well, Lee was, I believe, I think the secretary. He was part of this commission. He wasn't like one of the like um, voting members, but he was employed by the commission, and he was responsible for getting these reports out, probably writing them and getting them out. So this is from 1974. Brand new book, but when you open it, you can see like, you know, they got the films from the 74 print and they just reissued it. So really good. And I start reading this thing and I'm like, okay. Uh, And this is where I find the smoking gun. So let's get to that. So uh, the book itself, you know, it's like a hundred and it's not even 150 pages, like 130 some odd pages. And um, I'm, I'm on like page 79. Uh, been stuck there a couple days. I haven't been able to read for the last couple days just with everything that's going on, but it take me, you know, I'll, I'll finish it in, in, in another sitting. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm reading through the book. First chapter talks about the problems of our society. Not going to get into all that, but like here are the challenges. Um, second talks about some of the responsibilities and so on. And w- what the commission does is they talk about requirements. You know, for the press to be free, it's got, it's got to, um, th- there's certain requirements that have to be met. If we're going to protect this press, allow it to be free, allow it to do its job. And their argument was kind of like I opened, like we really need a free and responsible press because the society is getting large, it's getting complex. It's getting affluent. It's becoming diverse. Uh, and so we need a way to keep everybody informed, that they can get good information, that they can have access to intelligence as they need it. And it needs to be in a way that, that is comprehensive so that people really can make sense of the world and you know all this kind of stuff. They're just trying to make sure that people have the information they need so that the democracy can continue forward. Because the democracy is getting so large and diverse and complex that it's not, you know, you can't just put a newspaper out and the people have what they need. It's it's the needs of the society are, are becoming much more uh, nuanced and complex and diverse. I keep, just keep saying complex and diverse over and over again. And so there are some requirements that need to be met. I'm not going to go through them all, but in the very first requirement, this is where we find the smoking gun. Okay, so the first requirement, and there are five of them they put out there, and I'm going to read the requirement as it's stated, and then we're going to unpack very quickly and get to that smoking gun. They say the first requirement is a truthful and comprehensive and intelligent account of the day's events in a context which gives them meaning. So they say for the press to, re- to do its job, to remain free and to really serve the society, the first thing it has to do is give a truthful, comprehensive, and intelligent account of the day's events in a context which gives them meaning. You go, okay. So right there, you're already seeing this, and this is a shift. They're saying like the, the, the media needs to start conveying information in a way that people can make sense out of them. Now, check this out. And this is where we get into something really crazy. They talk about uh, it's, it's no longer enough to report the fact truthfully. So whereas before it was a reporting of the facts, stock market went up 12 points. War broke out in Spain over... Uh, you know, royalists versus um, revolutionaries. Uh, earthquake in San Francisco. You know, fire in Boston. Like these are facts reported truthfully. We're telling you what it, we're telling you what happened. We're not saying sea monster. You know, <laughs> swallowed a ship or like ship lost at sea. Okay, so they're saying, and this is I'm reading. It is no longer enough to report the fact truthfully. And here's the smoking gun, ladies and gentlemen. It is now necessary to report the truth about the fact. It is now necessary to report the truth about the fact. This is 1947. This is exactly when journalism changed to become what it is today, a lying, manipulative collection of fake news. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. They continue, they say, in this country, and this is, and when you unpack these next few sentences, you see exactly sitting here in 2024 where this 
will go and where it will continue to go. And, and I want to be clear before I read this, I don't think that the people on this commission were like, we've got to find a way to make sure that the Democrats keep winning the presidency. <laughs> these were a lot of conservatives. Luce was a conservative. Like the owner of Time Magazine was a super conservative. A lot of these uh, press owners, these media owners were big conservatives. And a lot of these folks were like the things that you and I are dealing with, even if these folks were like, well, I'm, you know, I'm progressive. I want to see, because America was bitten by the bug of progressivism, meaning science and technology and economics, everything was moving forward. All the problems were being solved. You know, we got that, that last war behind us and everything's blue skies and there's a, an explosion of optimism. Uh, and this is all around this kind of positivistic idea that science is going to solve everything. You remember some of these, you know, uh, reels that you'd see in school. I remember as a young Catholic schoolboy, they bring out the, you know, the, the, uh, is it eight millimeter, um, film strip, you know, the dun, 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 dun. There'd be these like, uh, you know, very upbeat kind of almost martial music. And you'd see some assembly line cranking out products. And then there'd be some, you know, really kind of newsy old timey voice. Modern society is moving forward at a breakneck speed. Thanks to science. You know, <laughs> you're just like, oh, I've eaten it up. So they're living in a world where they're excited about the future. I don't think that they're saying this because it's like we're looking for a way to break society. We're looking for a way to, to destroy the conservatives, et cetera. They're just positive and excited about where the world's going. So they're saying it's no longer enough to report the fact truthfully. It is now necessary to report the truth about the fact. Okay. So read, check this out. I'm going to read this to you. In this country... A similar obligation rests upon the press in reporting domestic news. The country has many groups which are partially insulated from one another and which need to be interpreted to one another. Factually correct but substantially untrue accounts of the behavior of members of one of these social islands can intensify the antagonisms of others towards them. A single incident will be accepted as a sample of group action unless the press has given a flow of information and interpretation concerning the relations between the two racial groups, such as to enable the reader to set a single event in its proper perspective. If it is allowed to pass as a sample of such action, the requirement that the press present an accurate account of the day's events in a context which gives them meaning has not been met. So their argument here, they're saying, look, you can't just report an event and let it be because people will take that event and assume bad things about other people potentially. And, and let's just put it on the table. And I'm, I don't care, pick any race, uh, you know, but the, if you're like, well... <laughs> You know, like, how do I pick a race? Like, what race can I pick that no one's going to be offended by? See, this is the world we live in right now. Uh, I don't know. I'm at a loss. But if you if if the newspaper reports that a black man assaulted a white woman as she was going about her day shopping, their concern was that the readers of the newspaper, especially whites, would read that and go, "My gosh, the black people are violent," and they didn't want the press to do that. They wanted the press to provide more information. So they might tell you that this black man just broke out of prison. They might tell you that uh, the woman had said rude things to him. They try to provide some context so that you can make sense out of this so that you don't think that all blacks are violent. Now, now for as wrong-headed or as right-headed, wrong-hearted or right-hearted as that might be, because let's face it, there are instances and, and you can see this in court cases where if you only present the facts, you're actually damning someone unfairly. If you only present the facts, and I don't mean you present all the facts, but you, there's a way, and we all know this, to present the facts that actually paint an untrue picture. I mean, we, you can do it. I mean, lawyers do it all the time. Uh, my, my, my opponent did it to me, his team, my opponent, in my political race. I'll give you an example. They sent out a text message. So here's the thing. The Chamber of Commerce here in Charleston put out an application saying, hey, you know, fill out this application if you're a candidate and we'll consider you for, um, uh, what do you call it, endorsement. 
All right. Now, here's the thing. The Chamber of Commerce in Charleston is a woke joke. They're a bunch of, you know, DEI wokesters. It's just it's just like it's a shit show. And it's like, oh, you're going to get all feminized. We're going to, you know, and and here are my pronouns and not not doing it. Right. So I'm running for office. I'm like, screw that. I'm not interested. They're not going to even consider me anyway. And even if I were woke and et cetera, Hey, dude, I'm a white 56-year-old male. Where am I going? They're not going to say, <laughs> like, I don't have a prayer. So I didn't bother. I just ignored it. I didn't even apply. It's not like I applied and got rejected, right? Okay, so later they come out in the, in one of the main newspapers and they publish, and, and on their website too, I think it was on their website, but I think it also showed up in a paper. Forgive me if I'm getting some of the facts wrong, but they published somehow their slate of candidates that they were endorsing. And they went through the mayor. They endorsed the sitting leftist progressive mayor. They Everybody that was a leftist candidate in all the different districts running for city council and the mayor, they endorsed. Now, they get to my, count, my district. They do not endorse anyone, but they say that although we're not endorsing anyone, William Tinkler, who is my opponent, hey, Will, what's going on, buddy? They said he is qualified. So what they were saying is we were, we're not endorsing him, but we'll at least say he's qualified. Okay. All right. So so kind of, to be quite frank, Will, you got dinged. Okay. You got dinged. You put your application in there and they didn't think that you were qualified enough to endorse you, but to not slap you too much in the face, they just said, well, he's qualified. It's kind of pathetic. <laughs> if I'm honest, his team sends out a text you know, with all these bullet points about how terrible I am. And one of the bullet points in the text message, and they blasted this out to my constituency. I got it. I was sitting with a client in Pennsylvania at the bar, at his bar that he owns. That's not like he's got this bar that he owns. I work for his big manufacturing company. We're having dinner together at the bar, and this text comes in, and we howled. We laughed so hard. The text comes in, and it says one of the bullet points was, Mike Gaston was deemed unqualified by the Charleston City, uh, by the Charleston, um, what do you call it, the, the, the greater business, whatever. So I, I can't, I'm so tired, I can't think. What do you call it? the Chamber of Commerce? I'm sorry. So Mike Gaston was deemed unqualified by Charleston's Chamber of Commerce. So when you read that, it's like, holy smokes. I mean, so I guess factually it's true in the sense that by... By omission, I was unqualified. I mean, it's it's so it's, it's kind of tw- look not kind. He twisted it, okay. But people got that. You read that and you're like, wow, this Gaston guy must suck. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce thinks he's unqualified. I don't know how I'm making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, as a consultant um, working for some of the best companies in the country. And I've run an agency working with like Fortune 50 companies running brand campaigns. And I don't know how I'm doing that if I'm unqualified. Clearly, Charleston Chamber of Commerce has a standard so high that it's just impossible to meet. But, you know, here's the thing. That's that's how you can report a fact, quote unquote, but it's not true. So technically, I couldn't take him to court and say he's lying about me. I mean, it's, you know. They did not qualify me, but he didn't say it that way, did he? So I give you the context here, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you're unqualified because you never applied. And actually, you know, kudos to him and his team. I mean, these guys, they suck so bad. I mean, it's just nothing but respect because they took the fact that he couldn't get, that he applied and could not get endorsed and got a kind of a, a second place trophy and turned that, that turd into, you know, a home run. I mean, people, I'm sure, got that text and thought, wow, Gaston sucks. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's an example of how, you know, a truth can mislead. And so I get it. You know, when you're saying, hey, you can't just put a story out there with only the facts because it may mislead. I totally get that. But, but you know where this is going. And, and I kind of opened alluding to this. Uh, I, you know, I'm all for giving context of something makes sense. And before I, I, I was going to jump forward, but let me, before I even go, just from, from biblical exegesis, you don't take a verse out of the Bible 
and just try to understand that verse. You have to understand that verse in the context of the passage that it's a part of, the book that it's a part of, the kind of literature that it is, the time that it was written, the author, all these things. It's not to say that you you sap the strength out of a verse. A lot of folks like to do this with contextual criticism. They just rip it to shreds to the point where it doesn't have any power to it. But, but you don't just look at a verse and, and then say, okay, this verse says X, Y, Z, so I'm running with it. It's like that's out of context. You go to the Old Testament, God's like, you know, smite them, their women, their children, smite the lot of them, you know, don't leave anybody standing. That's not a Bible verse. But like you get this thing where God says, wipe out your enemy. Okay, am I so is that biblical? Is that like God directing me? That's taking it out of context. When you read, oh, this is a historical event, there was an oppression. Th- like you can, there's all sorts of stuff that plays into that. Okay, you got that. You guys are with me. So reasonable context towards the truth is critical. And when you listen to what they say in this commission report, you see, okay, they seem to be saying we want uh, to help people get to the truth. But what they're saying is the truth about the facts. That would be fine in and of itself if you had a press that had good intentions. And I think during the time that this was written, for the most part, they did. Here's where it falls apart. So that's the smoking gun. The smoking, that's a shot that was fired. And the, and, and the reason that that shot has had such terrible effects on our society and the state of our nation right now, I mean, the press, it's not just that the press lies to us. The press has ripped us to shreds. The press has hollowed out the very things, the charity, the goodwill, the kindness that we have for one another. There's, there's no trust left in this country. There's, it's just nothing but cynicism and raw hunger for power in our country. And a lot of that, a lot of that, no small amount lies at the feet of the press. They own that. They've done that to us. Why is that? Now, it's not just because the fine gentleman of the Commission on Freedom of the Press said that it's no longer enough to, to report the facts as they happen, but you have to report the truth about the facts. What's happened is the issue of truth. You know, when this was written, America was in mod, a stage of modernism. It was the modern era. And you could know things objectively. There was truth. Something was objectively true. Whether you were black, white, male, female, religious, non-religious, an immigrant, or a multi-generational American, you could agree on a lot of the basic things to be true and real. You thought it was true and good and right, I'll say good and some more than true, that, that we should respect our elders. People thought it was good that people marry, that a man and woman marry. It was unthinkable, except for a, a small minority of extreme radicals, that, that men should marry each other or women should marry each other. That was just like, it was just unimaginable by anybody. Atheists, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody, no one imagined that, nor would they embrace that, endorse it. So a lot of the things that you and I are wrestling over, abortion, marriage, all these issues, we as a nation were in the modern phase, and yes, we were very positivistic, we were very science-oriented, we were very progressive in that we were solving all of life's problems and life was grand and going to get better and better and better. The, the future was exciting and exhilarating and we were moving towards it. But we had a sense of what was true and good and right and we shared that. We didn't wrestle over that. And then you find yourself in a postmodern world where what is truth? And the problem that we have right now is you have a press, a media, this hyper object made up of all kinds of individuals, organizations, institutions, and sadly, even our government, (laughs) a la Twitter, that don't know what is true or real anymore. We don't have truth. We've cut ourselves off. We are, we are cut adrift from truth. Truth was the anchor that kept 
our society stable. And we've, we've, cut, we've cut that anchor free. We, we're just adrift. What is true? We're postmoderns. What is true? Well, my truth versus your truth. Well, I see it this way. Well, I see it that way. We'll just have to agree to disagree. Well, you know, and then people scream about, well, the data, the data. It's like, well, the data, you can't make the data say anything. Well, the science, the science, we can't agree on the science. Because we've, we've reverted to this thing of like everything now is a hammer. The data is a hammer. It's a cudgel. Just to like, I'm going to hit you over the head with it. The science is the same thing. It's a cudgel. I'm just going to use it to hit you over the head. And I actually don't care if it's accurate or true or real. I just want to use it to defeat you in an argument because we're enemies. That's the world we're living in right now. There's no objective truth there's nothing objectively good. You've got guys like Sam Harris, you know, the new atheists, and, you know, we don't need religion and we don't need, you know, theology to know what's good. And if you need that as a crutch, that's you. But we all know it's not good to murder a child. It's obvious. It's not good to murder a child. You know, we don't need the Bible to tell us this. Really? Well, uh, it's strangely, we can't actually seem to agree on murdering children, can we? Since, you know, hundreds of thousands of them are getting murdered in the womb all the time. And we sit and fight over it. And the fact that I even say it's going to offend some people listening to this. So clearly, we don't have a way to get to something that we can agree on as being right or true. Well, you know, Mike, we can't. There's certain things because, like, you, you believe this and I believe. Exactly. That's my point. I don't mean to say that we've got to have this kind of lockstep agreement of belief. And if you don't agree with me and we don't all agree with the party line. And I'm not talking about some type of collectivist submission to a top-down dictate on here's what's true and real. I'm talking about we've got no way metaphysically, philosophically, spiritually, intellectually, in our souls to know the truth. I mean, I if, let me back up. We absolutely can know that. And, and just for anyone that's wondering, anybody's like, look, I need to figure this out. I, I would direct you to Jesus Christ. I would direct you to the scripture. Start reading the Christian scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and look for Christ revealed in that book because that is, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He, he, he is the embodiment of the truth. If that offends you, I hope that you'll keep listening. But if it offends you, I'm not going to not say it. I'm not going to back down from it. You don't have to listen. <laughs> I'll refund all your money. <laughs> But in our society, we don't have anything agreed upon in our society that's true. We are postmoderns. And so what you find is oppress, not oppress, although that's accurate, the oppress. You have the press, the media, who has taken it upon themselves to make sure that you and I know the quote-unquote truth of a matter, the truth about the facts, so that we can make good decisions about voting. And yet at the same time, this press doesn't even know what's true. They don't know what's good. They don't know what's right. Look at some of their lives. I mean, it, and you can say this about anybody. I'm not trying to pick on them, but like these are not healthy, well-adjusted people. Sorry, my journalist friends. <laughs> a lot of these people are like really leftists. We're talking socialist, Marxist. And I, I don't mean, I'm not saying the guy down the street that works for your newspaper. He might be, I don't know. I'm talking now about national politics national press, and so on. The world is getting more and more and more ideological, and the press, because they don't feel the sense to be objective anymore, the Commission on Freedom of the Press removed their requirement to remain objective. No more objectivity. I can't just report to you the events, the facts, as they happen. Now I have to try to help you understand the truth about those facts. Well, how am I going to know the truth about those facts if I myself don't know what's right, good, true, holy, just, righteous. Like, I, how am I supposed to? So, so now it's up to me. Well, what do I think the truth about this incident is? And this is where you get uh, an Islamic, fascist, terrorist warrior driving a car through a, a parade in a small city of Christians celebrating Christmas, killing people, and the news media not only suppresses the story, but refuses to give information on the person, their background, their motivations, their name. Now, you can say, well, Mike, you know, we can't put his name in there because we have to have a fair trial. You know, but, they, but you know, we, they will flood the news 
with something against, say, a Trump or one of his, you know, someone in his orbit uh, before a trial. No worries about influencing a jury, et cetera, in that instance. They'll try these people uh, publicly in the press, in the media, trial by media, not a, not a qualm. Anything that they want, I mean, go on social media, et cetera. I'm, I'm talking about professional, you know, journalists that have check marks. Now, the Twitter check mark, I've got a check mark now. I mean, it's not the same thing as it used to be. But you've got these blue check people that were like legit journalists, New York Times, you know, just screaming F you at people that they didn't like on Twitter. It's like no professionalism, no objectivity, not even a shred, not even a, a, a pretense of objectivity. And so we're, we're, what we're dealing with is a press that was relieved of its responsibility to remain objective, but then given the burden of trying to help you and I see the truth. And it's like asking the blind to lead the blind, because this is a group of people that are godless. I mean, they're progressives. And in the majority of the press, and I'll just go back to this, and if you want to argue it, you show me the numbers, baby, the majority of the press institutionally is progressive. And I don't mean progressive in the old-timey 1947 example style. I'm talking about Marxist, socialist, progressive vision. Let's create a utopia, heaven on earth. We're going to make it all right if we can just give the state more power and more control, if we can let, if we can just get everybody to behave the way they're supposed to, if we can cancel the people that say things and think things that are just counterproductive, we can just exercise them from society. These people that won't get vaxxed, these people that support Donald Trump, these people you know that, that vote against tax increases, and these people that want to build walls and protect their families and keep their neighborhoods. These are the people that we have to destroy because they stand in the way of our vision of a utopia. And so what you have now is a press that is working hard to create a reality based on their ideology and their vision. Now, I know I'm painting with a very broad brush, and this isn't true for every, every single person reporting the press. I, 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 but I, but I, think, I think the argument that I'm making in, in general terms holds up. This is why we're dealing with what we're dealing with. This is why... MSNBC, CN, uh, CNBC, CBS, uh, CNN, uh, you know, all these, and, and even Fox News are guilty of this. Now, now, the majority of the press outlets, and even the international ones like the BBC, they're very progressive, and they're pushing a very statist, very uh, globalist, very progressive view and vision of the world. And they're going to tell you everything that happens uh, they're going to tell you the quote-unquote truth about those facts in ways that, that create the world and support the world that they envision. But see, the problem is they don't have any rooting in reality or truth because they've embraced something that's untrue. And these people are godless in the sense they don't believe in the transcendent. They, they say this themselves, by the way. This isn't me accusing them. And they're like, oh, but I love the Lord. They don't love the Lord. They mock Christians. They mock Jews. They mock Muslims. I mean, they don't mock the Muslims too publicly because they know that you can, like, get killed and stuff. <laughs> and besides, that's a marginalized group, and we're all for the victim because it's all about critical theory and deconstruction of Western society. And, you know, the whites and the Christians are the colonizers, as are the Jews. And But, you know, you know the Muslims, that they're helping us decolonize, baby. Goodness, we could unpack this for much longer. And I've gone over an hour here, and I don't want to keep going uh, and, and uh, take advantage of your good graces, my lovely audience. But this is where we're going, and this is how we got there. Uh, the Commission on Freedom of the Press, the report, A Free and Responsible Press, this is the smoking gun. This is where things change. When they made the recommendation that it's no longer enough to report the fact of a matter, an event, but that you have to report the truth of that fact. It stripped the media of any responsibility to be objective and placed upon it the responsibility and even the right to color things in a way that they see fit so that society 
thinks what they want them to think. And if you go back to why the media is so important, we go back to our, our quote-unquote democracy, you have to have a well-informed, intelligent citizenry or else they can't vote well. They vote for demagogues. They vote for abusers. They vote for charlatans. They vote for dictators. And the press can scream and scream and scream all it wants about Donald J. Trump. And all I can think about is that Shakespearean uh, phrase, methinks thou doth protest too much. Meaning, I think you're the problem. I think you're making so much noise about this because you're the one that's guilty. You're the one that's guilty. And we know this. And, uh, and this is why we're here. So guys, I hope this has, uh, been in, I hope this has been interesting to you. If you want to get in touch, I would encourage you to go to the podcast website. Just go to the currency dot show currency dot show. And, uh, there's a contact form there. If you want to get the show notes to the show, uh, I can, put a link both to the commission's report as well as Jack Hart's book, uh, A Writer's Coach, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Just go to the currency.show forward slash episode 139. The currency.show forward slash episode 139. Guys, thanks so much for your time. You know you, you know you make me happy. You guys make me so happy. I love you guys. I, I hope that God blesses you this year. I hope that 2024 is nothing but fantastic. So guys, love you all, and I will catch you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.